Hi, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the house. Let's give it up for the fathers this morning. We appreciate you. We appreciate you. All right, we are, I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes. We're going to be in um, quite a few uh, different passages this morning. Uh, We're going to be talking about standing firm in your faith. The Apostle Paul, uh, with the help of other uh, key leaders like Aquila and Priscilla and a few other people, uh, planted the church at Corinth uh, on one of his missionary journeys. And so he's writing to this church, and he tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. That's a good word for the men today. Uh, If you're a man this morning, now listen, manhood is not defined in the Bible as either you're an indoors guy or you're an outdoors guy. Let me give you an example. If you go back to the book of Genesis, um, Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was favored by his mom, Rebekah. Esau was favored by his dad, Isaac. Jacob and Rebekah they had a thing together. What I mean by that is they cooked together, right? He was like a chef, right? He was more of an indoors guy. Esau was more of an outdoors guy. He was a hunter, right? Probably a fisherman. So manhood is not either, you know, either or, whether you're indoors or outdoors, right? Manhood is not defined by if you're into the arts or music or theater uh, versus maybe sports, right? Um, manhood is not like a personality trait. It's not whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Um, I think biblical masculinity, and um, I'm not going to give you a very long list, but I think biblical masculinity, for me, it kind of boils down to a few things. Living with conviction, number one. If, if, if you're a follower of Christ, you should live with conviction, I mean, that's true for every follower of Christ, but if you're a man, you should have some clear convictions in your life. Number two, you should walk with God in integrity, right? Reputation is is who other people think you are. Character is who you are in the dark. Character is who you are when no one else is looking. I like to say it this way. If you're married, your wife knows who you are. She knows your character, right? Character is more important than reputation. Reputation is external. Reputation is appearance. Character is is this work of God in your life, who you are at the core of your being. Another thing I think that defines biblical masculinity is do you have a passion and love for Jesus? Are you God's man? Um, Have you, I mean, put a stake in your life and said, you know what, I am following Christ no matter what. Is Jesus the Savior and the Lord of your life? Does he have the final say? I love what Philip uh, Melanchthon, which is Martin Luther's protege, he was a, a great German educator, he was an intellectual leader, Uh, During the Reformation, we know that Martin Luther 
uh, nailed the 95 Thesis on the, the door. And basically, uh, Martin Luther uh, was reading the New Testament, and uh, he realized that the Bible taught that we're justified, we're declared righteous in the eyes of God when we place faith in Christ. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching a, a works-based salvation. They were selling indulgences so that people can get out of purgatory. And Martin Luther said, no, man, this is, this is false. This is, this is false gospel. This is heresy. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin, they, that's what sparked the Reformation. Going back to the Scriptures, that we are just by, by faith alone, uh, grace alone, Christ alone. But his, uh, his protege, Philip, said this, and it's in your notes. In essential beliefs, we have unity. In non-essential beliefs, we have liberty. In all our beliefs, we show charity. Essential beliefs are non-negotiable. There are, I like to say it this way, essential beliefs are closed-fisted issues. Those things you're not going to bend, you're not going to give on, you're going to go to the mat for, right? Trinity, deity of Christ, virgin birth, exclusivity of the gospel, Christ is the only way to heaven. Those are, are, are clear, right? Those are essential orthodox beliefs. Then you have the open-fisted issues, which are the non-essentials. You can agree to disagree, there are three categories of non-essentials. So uh, Philip said in non-essential beliefs, we have liberty. We have freedom, right? There, there's gray areas. Well, let me give you three categories of the non-essentials. I'm not referencing essentials. I'm referencing non-essentials. So non-essentials. I don't have them. No fill in the blanks for you, but write them down. The first category for the non-essentials is conviction, Conviction. You believe that there are issues that are clear in the Word. For instance, I believe that the Bible clearly teaches a certain mode of baptism. The mode of baptism is immersion. It's a non-essential category, right? It's not essential for your salvation. I mean, the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? I mean, talk about a midnight conversion. The guy gets saved at the last moment. Did he get baptized? Church, did he get baptized? No. Why? Because baptism doesn't save you. Faith in Christ saves you. Faith alone saves you. Baptism does not save you. So this is the first non-essential category, conviction, mode of baptism. Let me give you another example, eternal security. I believe the Bible teaches, right, that we are eternally secure in Christ, that doesn't mean you come to faith in Christ and then you live however way you want to live. No, you come to Christ and now he's Lord. He's master. He is CEO of your life. He calls the shots. He's the God of your life, the God of your soul, the God of everything. But when you genuinely place faith in Christ, he saves you. You're placed into the hands of Jesus, and Jesus is in the hands of the Father, it's a double vice grip. Nothing can snatch you, rip you out of the Father's hands. Another example is abortion, homosexuality. These are non-essentials. When I say non-essentials, I'm meaning when I say essential, it is essential for your salvation. The Bible is clear on these issues. Conviction, it falls in the conviction category, right? 
but there may be someone that sees it differently. I think the Bible's clear on those issues, very clear. The second category is conscience. These things are maybe not clear in the word. Um, issues like drinking alcohol, right? You can't point to any verse in the Bible that says you cannot have a glass of wine. You can't do it. There are principles surrounding alcohol. Alcohol is a wisdom issue. I really want to chase that a little bit longer, but I'm not going to. Um, another, um, another example is spiritual gifts, right? There are people that differ on which gifts are for today. This is a matter of conscience. Um, let me give you a great example of something that falls in this category of conscience. Political affiliations. Jesus wasn't Republican or Democrat. He didn't ride a donkey or an elephant, right? His kingdom was not of this world. Kingdom values, not of this world. So here's what we got to do as believers. You know, we, we, we get hung up. All of a sudden, it got really quiet in here, right? What I'm saying is we need to be gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, gospel-driven people. Your platform, your political affiliation should not drive you. If you, if you care more about CNN or Fox News than you, than you do what the Word of God says, man, you need to fix that. You need to fix that in your life. Here's another example. During the New Testament, believers, some believers, Paul was addressing this with the believers at Corinth, some believers thought they could go to the temple and they could buy the meat that was being sacrificed to the idols there. Some believers were like, hey man, I'm cool with that. Like, they make good barbecue there. Like, I can buy that, and that doesn't bother me. Other believers were like, man, that, that, I can't do that. Not right or wrong, right? It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of, you know, do you feel right in doing that? If you don't feel right about it, and you do it, then it's sin to you. Here's the third category. So, first one is conviction. Second one is conscience. Third one is choice. Let me make... I'm going I'm to I'm say it again. These three categories fall underneath non-essentials. Not essentials. Everyone with me? I don't want anyone leaving here today thinking, I can't believe he said that. I'm talking about non-essentials. The third category, choice. The word is silent. The word is silent. There are so many things that the Bible doesn't spell out for us. Let me give you an example. Clothing. Appearance. Now, some people say, well, the Bible talks about modesty. Okay, it mentions modesty, but it doesn't give you any principles. It doesn't dig deep on what does that look like. I got a teenage girl. We're trying to figure that out right now, you know? What does it look like? Holidays, right? Do you observe Halloween? Do you not? Do you observe, you know, do you, you, know, do you tie the Easter bunny to the resurrection day? Do you... Have fun with Santa. Do you not? Right? That's a matter of choice. The Bible is silent on those issues. Here's what I'm saying. Don't platform your opinion and just put it on other people. Right? There are gray areas. There are non-essentials. But then there are essentials. And around the essentials, we should be unified. We should unify ourselves around the essential core doctrines of the faith, orthodoxy. Anything that falls outside of historical orthodoxy beliefs 
is heresy. Jot this down. Not a fill in the blank. Jot it down. Unity around truth, not personal opinion. We want to be unified around truth. Unified on the word, not personal opinion. Essential beliefs. I gave a a list earlier. A-type doctrines. You go to the mat for these things. You hold the line. You you refuse to compromise. You're willing to die on a heel for these things. Closed-fisted issues. Non-essentials, important but not essential. Those are B, C doctrines. Agree to disagree. Open-fisted issues. Okay. Fill, Fill this blank in. Why are essential beliefs important? Why are essential beliefs important? I could give you a lot of answers, but I'm just going to give you one. Essential beliefs are important because many people deny the existence of truth. This is why essential beliefs are important. This is why we got to talk about doctrine, right? Which really now begs the question, what is truth? What is truth? We live in a postmodern culture. We live in a culture where, you know what? Truth is subjective. You know what? Man, just... You know, just, just uh, find your truth, own your truth, do your truth. You know, your truth may not be my truth, but man, it's all good, you know, because your truth is your truth. That's crazy. Truth is not subjective. You don't, you don't have the luxury or the authority to determine what truth is. Truth is fixed. It, it is objective. Truth is fundamentally about God. We come to know truth two ways. Revelation, incarnation. Revelation. God revealed himself to us. This is the Bible. He, he's revealed himself, not just in the pages of Scripture, but in creation. The incarnation. It's the coming of his son. Jesus humbling himself, taking the form of a man, becoming a, a bondservant, Right? So if the Bible is true, then the message of the Bible is the only message that contains eternal life. Jesus said the night before he was crucified, actually, back up, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, 75 times in the Gospel of John. I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. He said, I came to testify to the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The night before, he was arrested and betrayed by one of his own and and, and beaten and, and bruised and scourged and flogged and crucified. He huddled up with his men in the upper room, and he gave the upper room discourse. And one of the things he said, he dropped a bombshell on these guys. He said, I am the truth, I am the way and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. Here's the next point. The Bible is our final authority. Now, you might, you might be saying, man, I, I was expecting like a Father's Day message. Yeah, this is what it is. I'm challenging you, as Paul challenged the believers at Corinth, to stand firm in your faith. You, there, are, there is good reason, good evidence for us to stand firm in our faith. 
The Bible is our final authority. The Bible, not man's opinions, right? Not the traditions of the church, not some, you know, cleverly crafted argument. The Bible is our sole authority. That's actually the first core value that we hold to. Summit, the word summit is, it's an acronym, and each letter represents a core value. Our, our core value, sole authority of the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a pastor at Ephesus, his son in the faith, young protege. This is what he tells him. He says, all scripture is breathed up by God and profitable for teaching, for Reproof for correction, for training and righteousness. I want you to circle all scripture in your notes. All scripture, right? And then I want you to circle or underline, breathed out by God. Now, in your translation, it may say inspired by God. Or if you have an ESV translation like I do, breathed out by God. That is inspiration, the Holy Spirit blew into the winds of the cells and carried the writer of scriptures wherever he wanted them to go. Here's what I want to say. The Bible is not written by man about God. The Bible is written by God for man. Those are two different things. It's not written by man, right, you know, about God. It's written by God. He's the author. He's behind every book, every chapter, every verse, every word. The Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. And what is the Bible profitable for? Like, how can the Bible help us? It says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible is there to show us what is true, what is, what is right, what is wrong, and and to correct our way of living, and to train us in righteousness, to train us in godly living. Now, there's different theories when it comes to the resurrection. Some people say, well, you know, it was like a dictation. You know, everything was just dictated. Just, it was forced upon these writers. Some people say, well, uh, uh, you know, the theory of it, it has this existential component, right? So when... Um, when you encounter the word, when you read it for yourself, the word is then experienced. And there's this existential, you know, um, amazing thing that happens in your life. Some people say, no, it was this limited theory that the Holy Spirit inspired the thoughts but not the actual words. But when you come to the scriptures and you look at all the references, all the things that Jesus said about the Bible, and what, what Peter said, what Paul said, I hold to a plenary verbal inspiration. And that means every word in every book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, every chapter, every verse, every word. The Holy Spirit chose the words. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit said, hey, Paul, hey, Paul, I want you to write something. I want you to write something, Paul, and help these believers. No. The Holy Spirit inspired not just the thoughts, but he inspired the very words. Now, he used the personality of each biblical author, each writer. He used their personality. When you read Peter's, um, Peter's writing versus Paul, 
you know, Paul was, um, man, that guy was brilliant in terms of crafting arguments and very logical. Peter was a fisherman. So you see differences in, in their writings. And this is why I don't preach from a paraphrased Bible because here, here's the deal for me. Clarity is more important. Clarity is more important than easy to read. So some people, they, they want to get a, a dumbed-down version of a paraphrase. Listen, if that's, that's your call, you, you go there. But I want clarity, right? I want to go with a, a translation that is more word-for-word word that is um, based off the original text. When it comes to inspiration of Scripture, Jesus affirmed Moses as being the writer of the Mosaic Law, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Jesus said that the Scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus said the Scriptures will be fulfilled. And, and Jesus really talked about all of the, the prophets in the Old Testament ultimately pointed to him. Here's the next point. What is biblical authority? What is biblical authority? Biblical authority is the belief and conviction that no truth trumps Scripture. Um, anyone ever played the card game called Rook? Raise your hand. Rook, anybody? So in the first service, it was like two people, right? So when you play the, 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 the Rook card game, go, go buy the card game. It's a great game. When you throw down the Rook card, that is the ultimate trump card, right? That Rook card trumps all the other cards on the table, and you collect those cards, so you collect those points, right? The Bible is the Rook card. It's the trump card. Nothing stands in the way of Scripture. The Bible has ultimate authority over everything. Nothing trumps the truth of God's Word. It is sole authority for life, for godliness. Um, it's, our, it's our authority. It's it's, un, it's under which we, we place ourselves under its authority. Let me give you a few different questions. And really this pertains to, is the Bible your authority? How do you know if the Bible has the final say in your life? Here's the first question. Can the Bible change your mind? Can the Bible change your mind? You know, some people think, hey, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. God's going to grade on a curve, a scale, and he's going to let me into heaven. But the Bible doesn't teach that. So when you're confronted with that reality, are you willing to allow the Bible to be the root card, to change your thinking? Um, number two, can the Bible melt your heart? Can the Bible melt your heart? Um, you know, as, as, um, as human beings, we, um, we battle a lot of different emotions, anger, resentment, bitterness, unforgiving spirit. When, when you're encountered, when the scriptures encounter you and, uh, and you read verses about being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving and be forgiving as God in Christ forgave you like this, does that melt your heart? Does that, does that change you, right, from the inside out? Does it uh, motivate and propel you? to live that out in your life. Here's the third one. Can the Bible change your direction? Can the Bible change your direction? A lot of people, before they come to Christ, well, all of us, actually, we were, we were living in sin. We were living far away from God. It's amazing to me 
how the scriptures have the power to change people's lives. You know, we all know people that were just raw pagans, man. I mean, raw pagans. I mean, their life was just riddled with sin, brokenness, um, broken relationships. And then they come to Christ and their life is just radically different. It's the power of the gospel. The gospel has the power, the gospel is the power to radically change your life, to change the, the course of your life, the direction of your life. I like what Martin Luther said. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. I love that. That's what the Bible does. It speaks to us. It runs after us. It chases us. Here's the next point. The Bible is our final authority, which is confirmed by eyewitnesses. The Bible is written by men who saw Jesus, touched Jesus, heard Jesus. I thought about chasing um, some of the post-resurrection appearances. Did you know that when Jesus came back from the dead, when he came back from the dead, there's at least a dozen resurrection appearances, at least a dozen. Different groups, different disciples, different people, women, men, right? Um, he appeared to over 500 people at one time in Galilee. I mean, 500 people saw him at one time. He spent 40 days, the book of Acts says that he spent 40 days, and, and people saw him, they heard him, they touched him. Um, people had breakfast with him. The Bible is our final authority, which is confirmed by eyewitnesses. I like what John said. I, I didn't give it to you in your notes, but the beginning of 1 John, John was a, a disciple, apostle, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was very close to Jesus. Uh, Peter, James, John, they were like the, the inner circle, and he was very close to Jesus. He had this very close relational relationship with him. And he said this, John said this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you. That's what John said. I want you to hear what Peter says. Second Peter chapter 1, 16 to 19. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I want you to notice, did you catch what Peter said? He said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. He said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus' baptism, which is the beginning of his ministry. And, and then he's saying, we were eyewitnesses to his trans transfiguration. He said, listen, man, I got bookends here. Like, I was with him at the beginning, and I was with him at the end. Notice what he said. He said, we were with him on the mountain, 
And, and we heard the voice born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter was saying, I was there. I was an eyewitness. I saw this with my very own eyes. I heard this with my very own ears. And at Jesus' baptism, the Trinity, the Trinity was present. The Father spoke. The Holy Spirit descended. Jesus was baptized. Now, there's an ancient heresy called modalism that says, you know, that, that God um, moves into different persons, okay? Um, he manifests himself in three different roles. So God moves into the role of Father, moves out, moves into the role of Son, moves out, moves into the role of Holy Spirit, moves out. But this absolutely denies the biblical teaching of the Trinity that God is eternally three in one. At his baptism, all persons of the Trinity are present, which refutes his heresy. The Father's voice thunders from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Here's what's so significant about this. Peter is saying, Jesus, Peter recognizes the sonship of Jesus. Peter is saying, Jesus is the son of God. Why is that so important? Because in their culture at the time, they were under Roman rule. The people believed that the emperor, the king, was God. They worshiped the emperor's God. And so when the emperor died, right, they declared him to be God. They built temples to him. And then the emperor's son would be the Son of God, meaning that the Father and the Son shared the same stuff. Both were God. And this is exactly why the Roman Empire, they were furious and they persecuted Christians because early believers were saying, listen, Jesus is the Son of God. He deserves all of our worship. We're not going to worship the emperor's God. We're going to worship Jesus as God. Not only was Peter an eyewitness to the baptism but he was an eyewitness to the transfiguration. He said, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. If you go to Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray. And what happens? As Jesus was praying, it says that his appearance, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became like dazzling white. His appearance was altered. It was like transfigured. The, the English word is metamorphous. The veil of his humanity was lifted. And these three guys, the inner circle closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they saw who Jesus really was. They saw his glory. They saw his deity. They, they saw his Shekinah glory the gospel writer Matthew says about this event, his face shone like the sun. Jesus' glorified body illuminated his clothing, bright as flashes of lightning. The father's voice thundered, this is my son, my, my chosen one. And then the father said this on the mountain, listen to him. In the Greek, that is emphatic. It's emphatic. Listen to him. So here's the question. 
When it comes to authority in your life, who are you listening to? Like, what is truth? What defines truth for you? I've asked people over the years, what is truth for you? And generally, you're going to get the same answer. I, I, I've received the same answer. Well, that's just what I believe. But here's the thing. When they ask me, what is your truth? I say, well, you know what? It's not about what I believe. I believe the Bible. The Bible is my foundation for truth. And it's credible. And there's, there's, the evidence is, is weighty for why I believe that the Bible is true. So, which leads us to this question. How can we know that we have the Bible as it was written long ago? And I would say textual criticism. Textual criticism is how does the Bible stack up against other ancient literature? Let me throw out a few questions your way. How many old manuscripts do we have? Um, how close are they in terms of time between the oldest ones and the originals? What's the gap, right? High school students, they study Plato, right? No one questions whether or not we have the authentic words of Plato. No one does that. Let me show you. I provided it in your notes. I want to show you some ancient literature. Um, authors, um, when things were written, earliest copy, time span, number of copies, okay? Political scholars never question Caesar. They don't question Caesar. But we only have 10 copies. The earliest copy we have from Caesar is 1,000 years. Literary uh, scholars quote Plato. We only have seven copies. Earliest copy, 1,200 years. No one questions Caesar or Plato, but they question the Bible. Here's the deal. Look at the list. Look at the number of copies, right? Caesar 10, Plato 7. You go, go through here, right? The Bible has over 5,000 manuscripts dated within 100 years of the originals. They have found fragments of the Gospel of Mark within 100 years of the originals. Now, Homer is a close second behind the Bible. It's not listed. Homer, I think there's like 643 documents compared to the Bible having over 5,000. So if you're going to claim that Caesar was a real historical person, you have to play by the same rules. If Caesar was a real historical person, then Jesus was as well. Like I said, no one questions Caesar. I mean, it's just accepted as fact, right? I mean, but people question whether Jesus lived or not. If you refuse the historicity of the Gospels, then you have to refuse to admit that you can know anything about antiquity. You have, you have to play by the same rules. You know, people say, well, Peter, James, you know, uh, Paul, you know, they, they didn't say that. They didn't do that, you know. And, and the reason they say that is because the Bible makes moral claims. And I think a real issue for a lot of non-believers is they're confronted with the moral claims of the Bible. And when you're confronted with those claims, you have to make a decision. What am I going to do with that? right? Am I going to believe that it's true and live according? Am I going to place myself underneath the authority of the Bible where the Bible has ultimate accountability, right? I have ultimate accountability to the Bible. Or am I going to reject it as, as truth? When you're confronted, you have to make a decision. 
You know, Peter's saying, I was there. I was an eyewitness, right? A lot of people who doubt the Bible, they weren't there. And, and most people want to point to contradictions which are really not contradictions. Here's the last point. We're going to end on this. The Bible is our final authority without human origin. Why do I say without human origin? Because not only does Paul tell us in 2 Timothy, but Peter tells us in 2 Peter, this epistle, this letter that he wrote, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he said this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So Peter's saying, man didn't write the Bible. He goes on to say, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's inspiration, right? They spoke from God, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word um, knowing, the word knowing there, is a present active participle. Literally, what Peter is saying is, he's saying, he's saying knowing this first of all. This, this, the meaning there of that word is, he is, is, you've come to the knowledge of something. You fully experience the truth of something with your whole being. This is what he, he's saying, knowing. Right? I've come to the knowledge of this, right? I've experienced the truth of this. Knowing this first of all. The phrase first of all means first place. Above all, most important, first priority, foundational. So Peter is saying, listen, I have come to the knowledge of this. I've experienced that this is true. And I'm delivering to you what is the most important news in all the world. And what is this news? What is this foundational news? What is this life-transforming, life-changing news? He goes on and he tells us, literally, Scripture doesn't come from man's, someone's own interpretation. Scripture, prophecy, isn't produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is saying, listen, all Scripture comes from God. It was not written by man about God. It was written by God for man. As believers, we're challenged with this passage. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You have one of two choices. You can say the Bible is the Word of God, or you can say the Bible is the Word of man. You're only left with those two choices. It's divinely inspired in its totality. It's inerrant in doctrine. It's immeasurable in its influence. Like it, it has life-transforming truth that changes our lives. Or it's not, none of it comes from God. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He was a great evangelist. He said, uh, the Bible... He said, the Bible is not for information only, but for transformation. I like that. The Bible is more than just information. It's more than just facts and data and knowledge that we keep up here. 
See, a lot of people, they know things about the Bible. They have head knowledge about the Bible. But the truth of the Bible hasn't made the critical direction change of 12 inches. It hasn't moved from their head to their heart. It's in their head. They know tidbits of the Bible. They know little things about the Bible. But they haven't actually surrendered and come to the Bible with faith, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing that he left heaven and he lived a perfect life and he died on a cross for their sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day. And that if they place faith in Christ, they place their faith, their trust in Jesus, they'll be forgiven. They'll be forgiven of all their sins. Their life will be new. They'll be a new person. And God will have this wonderful plan for their life. And so the challenge this morning is, on Father's Day, I'm challenging you guys, every one of you, but specifically, specifically the men today. You know, in the culture in which we live, you know, things are pretty dark. But honestly, I don't really think it's darker than really some of the, the dark moments in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, Judges, it was dark, it was gory, it was, it was pretty bad. But as believers, we're called to be little lights. Paul says, called to be these, these lights in this twisted and perverse generation. And if we're going to do that, we're going to shine light, we got to hold to the Bible. We got to hold to the truth of the Bible. We got to hold to conviction. We got to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And we're not going to compromise truth. We're going to stand on truth, but we're also going to stand on grace. You know, Jesus, John said that in the Gospel of John, he said, We we beheld his glory. He was full of grace and full of truth. The goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus. He was 100% truthful. He was 100% gracious. So as believers, that's the challenge. The challenge for us is we've got to hold the line on the Word of God. Unashamed, unapologetic, hold the line. Hold the Word. Don't compromise. This is the Word of God. I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to build my life on this, build my family on this. We're going to build this church on this. But I'm also going to hold to grace and love and compassion for people that don't know Christ. Because God's heart is big. He's got a big heart for lost people. I mean, the parables of the lost son and the coin and the sheep, he, you know... One sheep strayed, he left the 99, and he went and found the one. Prodigal son took the inheritance, squandered it, most likely with prostitutes. He came home, father welcomed him. The lady was looking for the lost coin. God's heart is relentlessly committed to those who are lost. So let's hold the truth, let's hold the grace. And let's be the people that God wants us to be in this generation.
Let's pray.